Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on Prisons. Tonight we visit three communities that have experimented with alternatives to imprisonment. First, Batavia, New York, a town that has diverted many offenders from its jails into an ambitious community service program. Then on to Sparwood, British Columbia, in the Crow's Nest Pass, where they've been dealing with young offenders in the community rather than in the courts. And finally, to the Northwest Territories, where the communities of the Dene Nation are trying to find their way back to a tradition of justice that the dog rib language calls simply doing things the right way. The program is episode eight of a ten-part series called Prison and Its Alternatives by David Cayley. Genesee County lies between the cities of Buffalo and Rochester in northern New York State. Fifteen years ago, the people there faced a decision about their jail. The existing building had been built in 1902 and had attracted a lawsuit as a result of its decrepit condition. The sheriff was urging construction of a new facility with an enlarged capacity. But there was also a group of citizens who opposed any expansion of the jail. One of them was an attorney named Doug Call. I spoke to him recently at his office in Batavia, the county seat, and he recalled for me the dangers they had seen in enlarging the jail. When you build them, you fill them. It's, it's a natural sequence of the spaces available. You fill it up and you run the risk that you'll see lower level offenses coming into jail because the least risk to the system is to send somebody to jail. And then when something happens, the people, the judge can say, I did my duty, I sent him off to jail. And the DA says, I did my duty, I advocated for jails. And at the time, you can commonly see that the prosecutors will run for political office on, with ads of slamming jail doors, that the, the real orientation of the system is to put people in jail. And that's the safe route. There's, if I put somebody out in the community working, they might commit another crime. The victim of the second crime is going to yell, and so on. The question of whether Genesee County needed a new and expanded jail dominated the elections for county sheriff in 1981. The incumbent argued that it did. Doug Call opposed him. I set a platform that said no new jail. We need to make offenders responsible first to their victims. They're the, uh, the third party to the system that really has not been made a party. That we need to make offenders responsible to their communities and do work for us. And that we need to make offenders responsible to themselves, that they need to do something about their lifestyle. And we need to use our sanctions and our resources and whatever we have as a society to bring that about. And I just ran on that issue, and I just kept pounding it and pounding it and pounding it. And uh, my experience was that when articulated to a group of people uh, that do you want to send them to jail and to pay money and then have them come back to your society, or do you want them to pay their victims, to perform work in the community, to straighten up their lifestyle, which is it? that you would choose, and I was elected by a pretty sizable margin. After his election, Doug Call postponed the question of the jail and started developing alternatives. 
Within a few years, it had become clear that an expansion of the jail would be unnecessary, and the county legislature agreed to renovate the existing building instead. Today, Genesee County still has surplus jail space, which they rent to other governments at a profit. The main reason is that the county now has a lot of offenders working in the community rather than sitting in jail. Dennis Whitman has coordinated this work program since it was established. The payback has been immense over the years. Uh, We've had, um, just since the program started, close to 3,000 offenders perform community service. Those 3,000 offenders have performed over 200,000 hours of unpaid work, building woodsheds, building ramps for handicapped people, doing a complete replumbing of uh, a Boy Scout camp by a licensed plumber who got into a legal problem. And this is a small county. It's only 60,000 people. And we have over 107 not-for-profit agencies, churches, schools, highway departments, hospitals, that are willing to take in an offender, not as an offender. They call them volunteers. And to an offender, not to be labeled is extremely important as to how they feel they're being accepted by that agency in the community. We've had a number of offenders write back saying, I've continued my work on with that agency because they treated me as a person, not as a, an offender, a loser, a parolee, a probationer, uh, ex-offender, whatever. So that sense of um, appreciation between the community and the person who committed a wrong really gives them some standing in the, in the community that they typically didn't have. The only standing they had in the community previously was a negative. One of the things that makes their community service program work, Dennis Whitman says, is close supervision. His community service and victim assistance office is located in the sheriff's department, and he makes sure a community sentence is taken just as seriously as a jail sentence. Every week we check with that agency. If there has been a problem, and there have been a few problems, not many, there's been a problem at a site. The beauty of us working with a sheriff's department, a police agency, is we can send a patrol car out to that site within a minute, two minutes, and be there. What impression do you think the offender has of a patrol, a uniformed officer showing up at a site saying, we hear there may be a problem here? Lots of accountability. And to the agency, what does that say to the agency? That this works, this is something that we like. Because we don't want someone that's giving us a jam job or someone that's uh, just drifting around and not really pulling their weight when it comes to the duties that are being requested of them. In Genesee County, community service allows offenders to be held to real account, but at the same time puts them in a valued rather than a despised position. It also changes the place of imprisonment in corrections, making it a last resort rather than a regular response to every serious offense. This is extremely important to Doug Call's mind because he believes that imprisonment is an effective deterrent only so long as it isn't used. After three weeks in jail, the people are pretty well adjusted to it. They don't fear it anymore. If you can keep them from coming to jail, there's that fear component that stays alive, okay, that I don't want to go there. And to not have to go there, I will do things, you know. But if I've been there four and five times, A, 
I'm going to opt for going to jail and not community work or going to school or going to alcohol counseling and or doing something for my victim. Why should, That takes a long time. I'll just go over, sit in the jail, get my three meals a day, and then I'll get out and do my own thing. You know, And nobody's on my back. And how many times I heard offenders say, I just want everybody off my back. And I think society loses when they just send them the easy way, which I could argue is the easy way to sit in a jail cell for six months and go back out on the street, and nobody's on their back. Doug Call's successful promotion of the idea that jail is the easy way shifted Genesee County out of the sterile, hard-on-crime, soft-on-crime debate that still preoccupies so much of the rest of his country and ours. He made accountability the issue, and a conservative electorate responded. But he and Dennis Whitman didn't stop there. Once community service was established as a sentencing option, they began to divert certain offenders before sentencing onto what they called a second track. This allowed them to slow down cases and assess offenders' efforts to reform before a final decision about that offender was made. The first case in which this was tried involved a sniper shooting. An 18-year-old boy named Matt Mooney, high on drugs and alcohol, had very nearly killed two other boys with a high-powered telescopic rifle. Dennis Whitman initially worked with the victims, and it was only when they began to recover and asked who was supervising Matt Mooney, then out on bail, that Dennis Whitman began to work with him as well. Eventually, the case was delayed for 18 months, while Matt Mooney met with his victims, took alcohol and drug treatment, did many hours of unpaid work, and faced an irate community. By the end of this process, the original charge, which could have got him up to 30 years in state prison, had been reduced to one that required him to serve only nine months in the local jail, plus do a lot more community service. He was also required to do what the sentence called educational deterrence. Man had to go out and make speaking presentations to 6th graders, 7th graders, 8th graders, all the way to 12th graders at seven different school districts. And Matt was a very introverted person. He did not have a good vocabulary. He did not have a good education, and he, knew, and he sensed it. But the thing that people could sense in Matt was his sincerity. Even though he felt he didn't amount to much as a person, he was making a sincere effort in his life. People read that right off the bat. So much so to the point that after he was sentenced, that one of the sentencing, uh, one of his speaking engagements was with the presiding judge in front of the Rotary Club in Batavia where all your businessmen and merchants were there and all the big to-do people in the community. Well, <laughs> Matt got up there and you could have heard a pin drop. This kid was speaking right after the chief judge in the county who can put people in prison for life. This little kid, 18-year-old, gets up there and starts telling a story, and he could hear the nervousness in every, in every sentence. And the people applauded him as loud as I've ever heard anyone applaud him. When I went with Matt to different high schools, it got to the point where the kids who were involved in alcohol abuse and drug abuse, they'd ask the teacher and they'd ask Mr. Whitman, could you please leave the room so we can talk to Matt one-on-one? -on -one? He had more to offer those kids 
than most certified people in the field. Why? Because he was their age. He had been down the road. He was coming back up the road the right way. And to this day, and this was, it's been nine or ten years, Matt is still sober, he's married, he has a family, he's working, uh, he has not been in any further trouble. So some people are worth taking the risk. That's the moral of the story. Dennis Whitman and his colleagues have continued to take such risks. They have now put a total of 130 cases on this so-called felony diversion track, and 127 of the people have successfully fulfilled the conditions imposed on them. One of the keys to this success, he says, has been the ability to connect people with community sponsors. These are citizen volunteers willing to support and encourage the person in trouble. He feels that they have proved particularly helpful and necessary with juvenile offenders. You know, um, I have sensed in the 27 years I've been in this, especially with young people, they want someone to, to be consistent with them. Am I worthy of someone's time? A lot of young people don't think that they're worthy of anybody's time. You don't have to go to um, Harvard Law School to understand what's needed in human beings to make them feel appreciated, worthy. You gotta put time in, be there for them, listen to what their concerns are, look for the things they're doing constructive. So I thought, how can we help them break the cycle? Get good standing people in the community that are willing to work with them. Meet with them once a week at least and befriend them. Build it. And we've had a number of the sponsors say after six months or 12 months with this one-on-one -on -one weekly relationships, they continue after the diversion. It doesn't stop there. And for the first time in some people's lives, we have heard offenders, young offenders say, for the first time, someone took a genuine interest in me. They didn't have to break the law to get someone's attention. Me and my friend went to, uh, we got out of school for lunch, and we went to a house, and we burglarized the house. We knew the kid whose house it was. We knew how to get in and everything. We knew where everything was. Jonathan Strange is an 18-year-old boy from Batavia who's currently on diversion and under Dennis Whitman's supervision. Took some stuff, came to about 13000 so, I mean, I didn't, I had no idea that's how much it was, everything was worth, you know. And I had no idea, you know, what I was getting into. Just thought I'd be making a little extra money, just, you know, stupidly. And got caught for it a couple days later. And what are you required to do? Well, first of all, I was on house arrest for a long time. And now I'm under a curfew of 10 o'clock at night to 6 a.m. in the morning and police can come and check any time, you know. And I had to write a composition of 200 words of why it's important to respect other people's property. I had to write apology letters to each of the victims, report here every two weeks, I had to do mental health, and pay restitution. And how are you doing that? Paying restitution? Yeah. Are you working? Uh, I haven't been able to find a job because of what happened. You know, nobody really gave me a break and hire me. I've had some help from my football coach with money and my mom with money. They're expecting me to pay them back, which I hope I will get a job and be able to do. What's your family's attitude been? At first, my mom 
kind of gave up on me because I've gotten in trouble before and I've always said that I wasn't going to do it again and it all just came big surprise to her. She had no idea that I was doing any of this stuff. First she gave up on me and then I think she saw that I was attempting to, you know, better myself and that I really was making a good attempt and then she backed me. And your dad? I don't have a dad. I had a stepdad at the time. Well, I had a stepdad for four years. Right before this incident happened, they got divorced. He hit my ma, I beat him up for hitting my ma. That was another incident that was on under all, it, was, it all came under the same felony. And that family situation was, you know, hard too, on both me and my mom. I have a brother that lives at my house. It's just me and my brother and my mom. Your brother's younger? Yeah. And how does he fit in here? Is he... Basically, he's, he's the good guy. You know, he does everything right. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm not a bad guy, but he just, I don't know, he does everything right. Football important to you? Yeah, kind of. I mean, my co another part of this I forgot to tell was uh, that there's community sponsor and like a mentor program and my coach was my mentor and I'd go there every week and talk about my problems and stuff and he was basically like a dad to me he helped me with everything helped me pay my restitution helped me with my problems that was a big part of it I mean seeing that you know like somebody cared who wasn't related to me cared about my future and what I do in the future I mean, it just boosts your self-esteem because it makes you feel like people care about you and other than your ma, which you think has to, you know. So pretty much he was a great positive influence on me. So what's your attitude towards all this now? Basically, I'm glad I got caught. I mean, I've just basically learned a lot, a lot from it because I have certain goals in my life that I want to accomplish and doing those things aren't going you know, to allow me to accomplish it at all. Do you think that's maybe common, that, that, that uh, when a kid gets in trouble, it's a turning point? It's a Well, usually. I mean, I've gotten in trouble before, and I've always said I'm never going to do it again, I'm never going to do it again, and be a period of six months, and then without doing anything, and I'll do it again. But I think most kids do learn, and that was the problem with me. I didn't learn. And because this was so big and so important, I mean, I got off easy all the other times. I'm not saying that, I mean, this has been hard. It's not like being put in jail, but it still has been hard. And it's in the back of my mind that I can be put in jail, you know. I mean, who knows where, what I could have done after. If I would have gotten away with it, I would have thought, well, hey, if I could get away with that, why not do another one? But I'm glad I got caught. Just... This gave me a great opportunity to better my life and start now rather than later on and screw up the rest of my life. At the end of his diversion period, Jonathan Strange will reappear in court to be sentenced. His crime is punishable by up to three years in prison. But if he is seen to be doing well, he probably won't go to jail at all. County Court Judge Glenn Morton says that from his point of view, this is the great strength of the new way of doing things. He's able to give deserving people a break because they now appear before him with what he calls a track record. 
the old process, you know, you have two attorneys stand up and arguing the potential of a defendant in plea bargaining or a sentence with a little pre-sentence report. Uh, there's a lot of educated guessing that goes on by judges. And I tell you, when they do this guessing, they're uh, more inclined to opt for protection of the community uh, than uh, take a chance with a defendant. You have this diversion program, and here's an individual who has a track record, an experience record, where the judge can see over a year's period of time how he's been able to rehabilitate himself, whether he can, whether he's got the potential for it, and whether or not there's going to be any community protection based on his ability to continue that in the future. And the judge has this greater sense of information as to when to give a defendant a break. Uh, and they're more opt than in those cases to go for the rehabilitation to keep those people in the community, keep them out of prison, see if you can't really do something with them. You know, judges are not born experts. Uh, they are just good people that diagnose situations and garbage in, garbage out. So you give more information, <laughs> you're going to get a more intelligent decision. So it has just sophisticated, it's starting to make the sentencing phase as sophisticated, hopefully not yet, but soon, as the guilt phase. In other words, it will be as refined in making uh, intelligent determinations. Judge Morton's enthusiasm is also shared by Genesee County's District Attorney, Robert Noonan. He says that the decision to control the size of the local jail population and seek alternatives to imprisonment has brought about much greater cooperation between the various parts of the criminal justice system than is usually the case. We have a, a number of players in the system who uh, probably get along a lot better with each other uh, than the adversarial players do in other systems. And we have worked together to screen out people who didn't need to be in jail for pretrial detention when possible. We have worked together to try to break the cycle of criminal conduct by repeat offenders because sending them back to jail time and time again doesn't seem to do much in that regard. And we have, when possible, tried to figure out alternatives to putting somebody in jail because of the cost savings and because of the hopeful change in, in the life of the person that you're dealing with. Naturally, uh, like any other system, when we have somebody that needs to be dealt with in the fully adversarial system, we do that as well. We have you know, all our trials and we prosecute our violent criminals uh, the way other people do. But I think I would describe it as many criminal justice loops work in a mode where the presumptive disposition of a case is jail. And I guess we work in one where the presumptive disposition is not jail and then only send people to jail if we really have to. From this change in what Robert Noonan calls the presumptive disposition of cases, a new philosophy of corrections potentially follows. In Genesee County, the alternatives have already proved themselves, and it's imprisonment that has to be justified. Genesee County has elaborated its new approach to corrections over nearly 15 years. Other communities are now beginning to adopt similar principles. Last year, in Sparrowwood, British Columbia, for example, 43 juvenile offenders admitted to criminal offenses, but none were sent to court. Instead, their cases were hashed out in community conferences involving everyone concerned, parents, victims, friends, 
and police. Sparwood is a town of about 3,000 people in the Crow's Nest Pass in southeastern British Columbia. The story began when Glenn Purdy, a local defense lawyer who had been representing young offenders for about a decade, caught hold of a paper written by a judge in the Yukon called Haino Lillis. The paper described a similar system now in operation in New Zealand. The idea appealed to Glenn Purdy because of his experiences with youngsters in court. It would be a rare occasion when I would deal with a young offender only once. The system provides little impact on a young offender either one way or another. The young offender has little or nothing to do with the court process. His lawyer will ensure, unless he's going to be giving evidence on the stand at a trial, that the young offender will say nothing, if possible. He will have no contact with the victim. It is the way the adversarial system is designed to essentially isolate the offender as much as possible. That's a defense counsel's job in many cases, and to present the most positive light for that young offender possible to the court. The system is divorced completely from the offending behavior and the impact that uh, such behavior might have had on a victim. It's very, very frustrating. So when I received Judge Lilly's paper outlining an alternative way of dealing with youth, it seemed to make uh, so much sense, not uh, from a legal perspective, but from more of a common sense perspective. Glenn Purdy took Judge Lillis's paper about the New Zealand system to the head of the local RCMP detachment, Jake Bowman, and said, in effect, could we try this? Sergeant Bowman turned out to be equally disillusioned with the juvenile justice system. Prior to my taking command of Sparwood Detachment, I was I was a watch commander, so I was more involved with the the day-to-day operation of the of the uh, policeman on the street, and and every shift you heard the same frustration of the uh, of the policeman coming in and receiving a call to a young offender complaint and and the the frustration that he felt well why am i doing this because nothing's going to happen anyway and and you know the kid will be back on the street and and the same thing will happen again tomorrow and i'll have to do it again the the other part was the frustration that we felt with the victim they felt they were not part of it uh, they felt we as policemen were were playing lip service to their concerns and uh, they had no input we had no input as Glenn mentioned, it became an adversarial contest in court between Crown and Defence, and uh, both the young person and the um, and the victim were left out of the cold. The victim would become ambivalent, I guess, uh, would be a good uh, descriptive. If he ever got involved again with the police, he'd just say, "Well, you can't do nothing anyway, so why do, why do I bother?" And uh, and the policeman would say, um, "Why should I go out and do anything? Because there's no results here." So. You know, it, it just became a big circle. Jake Bowman and Glenn Purdy decided to try a version of the New Zealand system in Sparwood. When an offence occurred and the offender admitted responsibility and agreed to the procedure, they convened a community resolution conference instead of charging the youth and sending him to court. Dispositions so far have involved restitution, apology, personal service, or whatever will put the matter right. What they have found most remarkable, Glenn Purdy says, is the part victims have played in the correction of offenders. What we're starting to see happen is that after they get over the emotional 
um, aspects of it, it happens on a very frequent basis that the complainant or victim wants to be and is directly involved in assisting the youth now. It brings the two parties together in quite an interesting way that uh, they both become human to each other, <laughs> if I can use that expression, which is something that doesn't occur at all in the traditional court system. The victim and offender rarely meet. So what this process does is humanize it and personalize it for all parties. And we think that has a quite a significant impact on not only the youth, but the victim as well. I'd like to ask you something about the dramatic scene <laughs> of a conference, because obviously that's part of it and, and perhaps <laughs> what a court ought to be and often isn't. I mean, God knows it's an imposing form of theater, but perhaps not human in this way. Do you think that things can happen in this situation that perhaps couldn't happen outside of it? Oh, most certainly. We, we had a conference whereby two young girls had beat up quite severely another young girl. Uh, they had caused bodily harm to her, and she was hospitalized, and then one of them had gone down to the hospital later and threatened to kill her. The families uh, did know each other, and uh, prior to the conference, uh, the victim's mother had written a letter to the paper about one of the offender's uh, mothers and how she had been inappropriately caring for and dealing with her, her child. It was fairly public matter in our area. And at the resolution conference, I believe we had a total of 26 people there, and it was an extremely emotional scenario, partly because of the letter to the newspaper. But perhaps I'll let Jake describe to you um, what he witnessed occur at a brief break we had during the conference. It was um, guaranteed nothing you would ever see in court, uh, at least not in my service, I have, I have ever seen or heard of. And that was um, the disposition or the resolution had been arrived at. And um, the victim's mother walked over towards the mother of one of the uh, young persons and they hugged each other and they were crying and they were apologizing to each other for things that one had said to the other or the other one had uh, inferred upon the other. And they walked out together. You know, I, I had never in my service ever seen anything uh, so effective. Uh, not only was it a learning experience for me, but it was a learning experience for both the victim's parents and the young people's parents because they, they, they had always seen their children as, as, as good kids and now they had seen this side that really wasn't that nice. But during the conference, they had realized that there was still a lot of good in these kids and that they just couldn't be thrown away and that they had to be dealt with and they had to work. And there's no doubt in my mind that walking in the mall, if the victim's and the young offender should meet that there would be no animosity just because of, of the resolution. And I'd like to add just one more thing. It, it, it's not only just the victim and not only just the uh, young offender, but also the policeman himself. You know, we're human and, and, and we, see, we see the change happening and, and our attitude changes towards the young person. And so when we see him on the street a week or two weeks or, you know, days later or years later, we may not be best of friends, but 
the young person has a greater respect for us and and we have a better understanding of what that young person has just been through. And generally speaking, that was not happening in court proceedings. No, it, um, um, you know, it's been referred to as a dog and pony show and everything else, but my experience has been um, on Thursdays on court date in Sparwood, there'd be four, five, six young offenders sitting in the back of court. We'd go through the ritual of um, the clerk of the court calling the cases. They would stand up, they'd either ask for an adjournment or um, wanted to seek counsel or whatever, and that would be granted and it would be set over for another two weeks. Or, And away they would walk and it would be, hey, we did it again. And they'd be walking down the stairs of the court, laughing on the way back to school. And, you know, it was a big joke. Now, we don't see them walking out of these resolution conferences as a big joke. It's not that we're looking for retribution at all, but we're seeing the youth owning up to his deed and realizing that he's done wrong, but he can correct himself. And um, of the victims that we've had, just about every one of them has vented, so to speak, inside the conference. And some have vented uh, more loudly than others uh, and, and have been more emotional. But one thing has been in common. They've all got to understand a little bit of what that young person was doing and that he's just not a criminal ready to be locked up in, in a cage. And they've seen that there's, there's some redeemable characteristics of this youth and, uh, and they actually look forward to being involved and, and, and being a part of the change that's going to take place. During 1995, the first full year that things have been done this way in Sparwood, there were 18 resolution conferences involving 43 young offenders. Glenn Purdy and Jake Bowman decided before they began that they would initially exclude very major offenses like rape, but in the event they had none, so no one went to court. They have no statutory authority for what they do, but rely on the common law authority of the police to decide whether or not to lay a formal charge. Glenn Purdy chairs the conferences on a volunteer basis and wants to keep it that way because he fears that any outside funding might jeopardize their independence. Youth crime, he says, is a community matter, and so its base of support must finally rest on the local community. The idea that crime is first and foremost a problem of the community is also being widely expressed throughout Canada's First Nations. Joanne Barnaby is the director of the Dene Cultural Institute, which has recently sponsored a project to try and recover a better sense of how justice was traditionally done amongst the several peoples who now comprise the Dene Nation. The motive for their study, she says, was the widespread dissatisfaction in the Dene communities of the Northwest Territories with the way the existing system works. People witnessed uh, repeat offenses. They witnessed uh, people being sent to jail, returning and uh, their uh, behavior worsening uh, rather than getting better. They saw that um, victims were not, and their needs were not uh, being addressed. They saw divisions occurring within, within the community 
with respect to the process used by the the courts, the adversarial approach, the uh, conflict-blaming kind of approach. And uh, they just felt that uh, the system was uh, perpetuating criminal behavior and breakdown within the community. People are not um, perceived to be held accountable for their actions when they're sent off away from the community, uh, sent into institutions and uh, where all their their, uh, physical needs are, are provided for. They're removed from having to deal with the consequences of their, their behavior in relation to any victims and in relation to um, facing their own, their own family and their own elders. These dissatisfactions were long-standing, but the question of what to do about them only came to a head in the later 1980s. It was then that the Denny Cultural Institute faced the question of whether to pursue a separate justice system or seek better Native participation within the existing institutions. A number of years ago, the Dene Cultural Institute was asked by the Department of Justice to work with them to uh, develop a um, a Justice of the Peace training program. And we took that uh, to the Elders' Council and took a serious look at that, and and, uh, the Elders' Council said no. They said that it wasn't appropriate for us to be perpetuating the growth of that institution at the community level, that the mainstream justice system was uh, fundamentally flawed and and was failing our, our people significantly. Uh, so they, in fact, uh, felt then that we had to begin the work to, to gain a better understanding of our own traditional system. And uh, that was one of the factors leading to the research project. This research project the Dene Traditional Justice Project, it was called, was sponsored by the Dene Cultural Institute, the Arctic Institute of North America, and the Band Council of Lac Lamarte, the community northwest of Yellowknife that volunteered to be the site for the study. The principal investigator was anthropologist Joan Ryan, a retired University of Calgary professor who's been connected with northern communities for most of her life. The work was published in 1995, under the title, Doing Things the Right Way, which is a translation of the dog rib word that most closely approximates the English word justice. Dog rib society, until well into this century, was based on extended family groups living by themselves on the land for much of the year. Survival was uncertain and depended on the careful cultivation of harmonious relationships within the entire natural community. The result, Joan Ryan says, was a strong emphasis on balance and reciprocity within the culture. And this idea of balance was the keystone of the dog rib conception of justice. Our courts are adversarial, and they want the perpetrator to be punished. The dog rib system seeks to restore balance within the individual. They want to know why he or she behaved this way, what made them do it, rather than focusing on what they did. But what circumstances, what in themselves made them behave this way? And secondly, how that can be addressed. And thirdly, how reconciliation can take place between parties so that harmony is restored. And once harmony is restored, then the group can function properly again. 
This emphasis on balance and reconciliation, according to Joan Ryan, did not always preclude punishment. Traditional dog rib culture also possessed effective and sometimes severe forms of censure. For minor things, ridicule. You know, if a kid stole a piece of bannock, he was likely to get it pinned on his jacket for the rest of the day, and he'd walk around, everybody would laugh at him, make fun of him, and you uh, can be pretty sure that he wouldn't do it again. There were harsher treatments for things which involved survival. Uh, for example, people broke hunting rules. They couldn't get partners. If you couldn't get partners, you couldn't survive out there alone. Children who uh, disobeyed hunting trapping rules were severely punished, uh, both verbally and by being hit with a willow stick because they were seen to be endangering not only their own lives but that of the camp. So the punishment was given not harshly uh, just to punish but to teach the importance of doing things the right way. Major transgressions like um, rape were known and were treated with very severely. The uh, perpetrator was banished. And you have to keep in mind that banishment at that time meant you could not go to another community, you could not go to another language group. You were out there on your own. And it was a death sentence. And that's one of the reasons why people get so angry today with the sentences passed down by our courts for sexual assaults and rapes because they're so minor in their opinions. Joan Ryan and her co-workers believe that elements of dog rib tradition can be recovered and made effective in the administration of justice today. The Dene Traditional Justice Project documented three cases in which this was tried in Lac Lamarte. One involved the local postmistress. She uh, would receive COD packages, mainly from Sears, and people would pay for them and she would pocket the money. And then Sears uh, discovered they weren't getting their money and sent people bills, and people said, we paid our bills. So an investigation was held, and it was found that she had stolen, well, she was charged with stealing 27 thou. She was a young woman, four preschoolers, and the elders immediately said, we don't want her going to jail. We'll deal with her here. And that uh, threw the community into two camps. The younger people who felt that if she didn't go to jail after stealing that much, then they would do whatever they wanted and ask not to go to jail too. And the older people who felt that she would learn nothing in jail, that it would not uh, teach her how to behave properly, which is what she needed to learn, and that if she stayed in the community and met with the elders regularly and did community service and had a curfew and couldn't drink or gamble, that that would be much more meaningful corrective measures than going to jail in Yellowknife. And as a first offender, she would have been out in about three to four months. And they also felt very strongly that her children needed her, that a mother should not be taken away from her children. So uh, the prosecutor agreed to go with the community on it, to sit in community discussions about it, and uh, took eight months 
for the community to arrive at some consensus, and they agreed that she would stay in the community. She would have a curfew from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., which meant she couldn't gamble. She was prohibited from leaving town except for medical emergencies or a funeral of a relative in a neighboring community, and she would have to have band council consent to do that. And they um, agreed that um, she would work in the uh, band office one day a week, and she would uh, provide the elders with service two days a week. So that essentially was what happened. And uh, one of the most amusing remarks I heard about it was as we walked out of court, a group of women behind me said, my God, no bingo for three years? That's real punishment. The idea that there are more severe and more effective punishments than jail is one of the foundations of the search for alternatives. What were called harsh words from elders were an important part of the tradition, Joan Ryan says. And the older people continue to believe that a proper response to crime must involve serious demands on the offender. The remedies that the Dogwood people suggest are remedies which are much harsher than going sitting in a nice warm jail and yellow knife and having your meals cooked for you and so on. And that is putting people out on the islands and uh, leaving them there, you know, with an axe and enough basic food and clothing to be safe, but they'll have to hunt, they'll have to fish, they'll have to do their own cooking, they'll have to make their own fires, they'll have to sleep in a tent, and they'll have to be alone. And in being alone, maybe they'll come face to face with their real selves instead of their acting out selves. The leaders of the traditional justice initiative in Lac Lamarck want the community to gradually take over control of the administration of justice, starting with more minor offenses and working towards major offenses. But Joan Ryan recognizes that there are formidable obstacles in the way. The community is now two generations removed from life on the land, and most of the people between 30 and 60 have been through the disorienting experience of residential schools. Traditional consensus-based governance has been replaced by elected councils, and the authority of elders has weakened. In the old days, people got together, they operated on consensus, and uh, now they operate by majority vote. Leadership tends to be young, and uh, to be not necessarily so concerned about the welfare of the general public, but to be more concerned about their own families and networks. Elders don't receive the same kind of respect. In the old days, elders, any elder, could count on being cared for. Uh, Now people don't bring them wood. They don't carry their groceries from the store. And often uh, younger family members take their pension checks and take off to town. To party. And so that lack of balance between generations and between caring and sharing is totally bent. And partly because of the residential school experience, when you take two or three generations away 
and train them in a vacuum because they're not uh, in residential school. They didn't learn to belong to our society either because residential school is not Canadian society. You have, you have that vacuum, and that's what has to be brought back into balance. Uh, those younger people do not understand their own history. They don't uh, know its rules very well, and uh, they don't know ours very well either. So there's a lot of uh, unhappiness, a lot of aimlessness, and... Um, a lot of um, behavior which is a symptom of that deep sense of personal loss. The Dene Justice Project was founded on the hope that local control of justice would enable the community to begin to get to grips with some of these problems. But in its recommendations, the project also accepted that increased legal authority for the community would have to go hand in hand with continuing cultural revival and the overcoming of alcohol abuse. Joan Ryan says that they've already begun to tackle the alcohol problem. We have 42 people in a program run by one of our ex-staff members, Mary Del Rabiska, and uh, it's going very slowly, but uh, people are doing it. And, uh, of course, in any uh, community, uh, you have a lot of women who are sober and uh, who are the guardians of the culture and who do keep the society moving. So you have great strength in uh, women and in some older men. So um, there's a lot of support there, but people have to be sober long enough to come to grips with the realities of what has been happening in their lives and then want to heal some of those things. And the healing process will be a long-term, very painful process over many years. But in the meantime, if, people are, if you get enough sober people to run an outbound camp for kids or to uh, run a justice system for adult males and females, then uh, that can go on simultaneously with the healing, and some healing may never be ended. Lac Lamart is only one of the Dene communities that have embarked on this journey. Others are at different stages, but all their initiatives will finally involve a fundamental change in the definition of justice. Western legal regimes rest on explicit legal rules and elaborate protocols for the protection of rights. Balance, consensus, culture, and community are the pillars of the Dene conception of justice. This has led some, including Native women's groups, to worry about possible abuses. But Joanne Barnaby of the Dene Cultural Institute says that her people must act decisively to save themselves, and they cannot allow an unbalanced emphasis on rights to undermine their attempt to assert their own responsibility. One of the concerns that I've had for years uh, with the uh, political process in, in Canada, and, and it's uh, one that uh, our leadership has bought into significantly, is, is the, the real focus and emphasis on, on rights. And in, in any discussion that focuses uh, only on rights and not on responsibilities, you're always going to, to be challenged to... Uh, 
you know, compare and to lay out in precise detail something that can't possibly uh, be uh, laid out in precise detail when what you're talking about is revitalizing something that has been damaged from the past, traditions that have been damaged, societies that have been damaged. And, uh, you know, it's really about allowing people to take responsibility and evolving the reestablishment of some culturally based and relevant uh, approaches that are going to be fraught with problems and, and errors and mistakes and so on. But so is the, the mainstream system. And the mainstream system has failed us so dismally that we can't possibly fail ourselves to the extent that that system has failed us. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to part eight of Prison and Its Alternatives by David Cayley. Tonight's program was produced by Alison Moss, technical operations by Lorne Tulk, production assistant Gail Brownell. A transcript of tonight's program is available for $7 plus GST, or you can buy the entire 10-part series for only $25 plus GST. Send us a check or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. And we also have a free reading list for the series if you'd like one. It's available at the same address. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair.